Thanks for joining us and supporting Vikido Fitness. We ask for your continued support by becoming an It's All About Health and Fitness premium member. Go to www.vikidofitness.com forward slash join. Again, that's www.vikidofitness.com forward slash join and register for a $6 monthly subscription. And remember, keep listening, sharing, and checking us out. The views and opinions expressed are for general informational purposes only. Consult with your physician or medical health care provider for medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Today, we talk about research articles and hot topics. Our topic today is, what's new? Hot topics number 58. We should be addressing influenza vaccination disparities during the COVID-19 pandemic. The cost of herd immunity likely invites more than a million plus deaths. Can we afford to let that happen? Chadwick Bozeman's death is making young people really, really think about colon cancer. Here's what to know. All this and more on It's All About Health and Fitness. Welcome to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward-Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks-Bright. This program is brought to you by Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum. Now, here's your host, Vicki Doe and D. Banks-Bright. I'm Dr. Vicki Hayward-Doe, and with me is the one and only Dr. Virginia D. Banks-Bright. <laughs> Hello, Vicky Doe. How are you? I am fine. And how are you, my dear? Oh, I'm doing. I'm doing so far so good. You know, there's a little bit of a lull right now in what we're doing, and I'm I'm okay with that because heretofore, when there's been a lull, I've been getting all scared, all whatever, and then all of a sudden it just starts to explode. So somebody told me, enjoy the lows because they're going to be high soon enough. That's it. And, and you need yeah, some rest. So right now we're in a mild calm. I'm just encouraging everybody to get their flu shot and uh, just try to, you know, keep everybody to wear your mask, wash your hands, and social distance. That's my mantra. And hopefully we will stick to that because, yeah, we, we, yeah. we got the storm yeah. coming in October. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we want to be ready. What they say, we ready, we ready. We ready. <laughs> Be ready. That's it. Yes. All right. Well, today we talk about hot topics and research articles that we think are worth looking at and talking about. And our topic today is what's new? Hot topics number 58. Can you believe, folks, that we are heading quickly? We're heading quickly towards the end of this year. And yes, I know we were hit with the pandemic. That's all we talk about. We are still living with the aftershock and consequences of that. However, there are some good things that have come out of dealing with this pandemic. And for me, I was able to slow down a little and reconnect with my family, building a better and deeper relationship. And so... What about you, Dee? Was that your case, too? Well, you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, because we've been 
been working. You I know. know. Me and Dr. Doe have been working, and for me, I just kind of, it's almost like I want to write a book. And sometimes I put on Facebook, what have you done during the quarantine, which has been very interesting because I don't know what that's like. Mm. Because we weren't quarantined. We had to be in the trenches. I did, however, you know, it was an opportunity, though, for me to also step back and realize that something like this can change your life so quickly and reflect on my years in infectious diseases and look back on when somebody came up to me and said, you won't have a job because everybody knows how to use penicillin. And here I am working seven days a week you know, 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day. So, yeah, that's what I kind of reflected on during this whole pandemic thing. But, yeah, it's been interesting for me to talk to people about a lot of people got a lot of reading done. My sister became a farmer. Mm-hmm. He started growing all kinds of stuff, uh-huh. you know, out in California because they were on total lockdown and still are. Uh-huh, big time. So it's just been kind of interesting. I think there are going to be lots of books written about this uh, in years to come, decades to come. I think so, too. And and also, yeah, with this pandemic, I know you guys were working, you know, and for a minute, I kept working, too, but I had to sit down and reconnect. And, you know, I couldn't go out. Yeah. I couldn't go out and do business with people. So that forced me to sit down and pull out my to-do list that I already had Right. And was working yeah. on, you know, my projects for Vicky Doe Fitness. So yeah. I was forced to complete the projects that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I had no excuse. I had plenty well, of time. Good. Yeah. That's good. I think it worked out for me. So here we are. I want to encourage. Or someone, or someone that we know said it is what it is. Uh-huh. It is. What... <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. And so with that in mind, I want to encourage everyone to, you know, let's finish this year focusing on things that we can control because it is what it is, right? right? Exactly. (laughs) Let's focus on that. Exactly. And we can control our state of mind and our health and well being as much as we can. So let's let's think about that. Let's concentrate on that. Yeah. Exactly. And so I want to encourage everyone to make sure you subscribe to this podcast show. It's all about health and fitness, Vicky Doe Fitness on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and any other place that you listen to your podcast. And you will be notified when we post any of our new shows. And yes, 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 you will be the first to know. We are constantly, I want you guys to know that we are constantly thinking and scheduling, trying to get great guests to come join us to talk about important topics and concerns that affect all of our health and well-being and that affect our communities. So far, we've been tremendously successful in bringing outstanding guests, right? Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Yes, we have. We have been successful with that. And so I am so proud of the wealth of knowledge that we are being able to share with you. And so make sure that you subscribe to this show right now. Also, make sure you go to our resources page, www.vickidofitness.com forward slash resources. There you will find products and services that will be helpful to you as you embrace a life of health and wellness. We have a variety of items on our resource list 
for you to check out and try. We have Reebok. I was checking and looking at things today, and I I see that some of you guys are checking out Reebok, getting and buying things um, from our resources list. So, yes, we have Reebok, uh, Warby Parker, Polar for your your monitors, iRemedy Healthcare, Spanx. Hey, you can always use some Spanx. And they have evolved from way back. They have so many wonderful things that you can get on the Spanx website. There's the right stuff, W-R-I-G-H-T, right, the right stuff. And this is a medical supply store online but it's specifically catering for the caregivers. So if you need to get a, a blood glucose monitor to do a stick, if you need one of the pulse ox that you can put on your finger, canes, you know, walking canes, all of that, those type of things you can find. It's very important at this time Yes, you know, with the pulse oxes and so forth, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the right stuff. Go check it out. Then the Art of Tea, we have that on the list and much more. But I want us to focus this time on the yogadownload.com that's on our list. For those of you that need to be introduced to yoga, I say go ahead and try this because this yoga download, this particular website is the premier online destination for downloading, streaming online yoga meditation. They have meditation programs, Pilates, bar, and fitness classes. And they have been online since 2009. They offer 1,700 plus classes, and they are taught by professional instructors, including world-renowned yoga teachers, including the teacher in the likes of Anna Forrest. And so make sure you go to our resources page, www com forward slash resources and remember when you use any of the affiliate links to buy any of the products and services on our resources page you are supporting us here at Vicky Doe Fitness and what do we always say D? Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Well D, we have successfully we're in that successful start back so far yeah so far it can't stay so far so good (laughs) so far good things are going okay things are going okay now it's been challenging for some of us you know because some of the instructors are doing teaching remotely Um, some of us are coming in face to face some doing a little bit of both yesterday Uh I had a few folks that wanted to participate in the class remotely, the students. So I had to to hook up, you know, make sure that that was going smoothly. So, yeah, it's a different kind of, it's a different kind of teaching these days. Uh (laughs) Yes, indeed. I bet. But it's it's all good because we want people to stay safe. And so far, so good. Yeah, definitely. That's That's the ultimate thing. Absolutely. That's it. So, yeah, we've been wearing our masks and, dancing and talking yeah giving a giving a lecture talking with your mask on one of my classes what about an hour and 30 minutes talking with a mask on that can be something (laughs) i bet that's challenging yes it is 
So I just have it where we take we take a lot of breaks. And you know what? Now that I'm I'm doing that now, we've taken a lot of breaks when we do the lecture. And then I said, listen, this is how even after this pandemic, COVID, you know, I think we should incorporate more, you know, little breaks within our lecture because we know the attention span is only so much anyway. So to sit there, you know, 30 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, take a little break, five minute break after you've taught maybe for for 30 minutes or so. And yeah, so that's what I'm doing. Yes. (laughs) You know, and then I I chill, though, too, for for Labor Day, just chilling and just enjoying and relaxing. That's pretty much all I I did. So, yeah, that's me. I uh, took a little bit of a, a break, hadn't had a week off since Christmas, and went to uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Decided that I wanted to explore part of the United States since we can't get out of the United States. Mm-hmm. Decided, well, why don't I explore some of the United States? And went out to Upper Michigan to stay in a place called St. Ignace, which is right on the tip. And about a, it was about a five-minute walk from the house that I was in down to the ferry over to Mackinac Island. Okay. I guess I, I was not familiar with this movie. Somewhere in time, it was a movie with Jane Seymour and Christopher Reeves, and it all took place in Mackinac Island. That's a big deal over there. And uh, it's a beautiful island, no cars, just uh, horse-drawn wagons and bikes and stuff like that. And that was really fun. Went over there a couple days, had some fudge. Uh, there's this beautiful hotel that a lot of people see. It's a big white hotel that you see all the time. Uh-huh. So that was nice. And then went on a boat trip uh, through Lock, where we went from one lake to the other lake, because we were up in Lake Superior, Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, all three of them sort of like there. And we actually went into Canada for a minute, hot minute into the Canadian waters where we saw the Canadian flag and then, you know, went around in kind of a circle back into the United States. And it, that was kind of interesting. That was my first trip out of the United States. So we were like, all the everybody on the boat was like, yay, well, at least we got out of the United States for five minutes. <laughs> um, for five minutes. And then, leisurely, and then leisurely after that, just took a drive down the coast of Michigan through uh, some cities along Lake Michigan, went to Traverse City, which I had never been to. A lot of these little cities were really cute artist colonies where there were cute galleries for art that you just didn't know existed. There was a place called Bar Harbor. It's a beautiful resort area that you would never know existed. So I called a friend of mine. I said, hey, you know, you made this recommendation about this Bar Harbor. What's the deal here? There's so much money. And he said, well, have you ever heard of the Fords, the Chryslers, the Oldsmobiles, all these people? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, that was where the summer homes of the automobile madness were. Okay, wow. I knew it was. I knew they had to have some money because, I mean, these are some serious houses and boats and everything. So that was good. And then made it back and then back to work last Friday. There it is. There we are. <laughs> there we are, like you say. <laughs> there we are. It is what it is. That's it. <laughs> Yes, and at least you got a chance to relax. Yeah, I did. Absolutely relax. Left, you know, relax, did a little bit of reading, put my feet up. Yeah, I definitely did. So that's good. That's good. So what is going on this week? Well, everything. Everything, everything. Yes, yes, yes. You know, they have all the sports things happening, the U.S. Open 
you know, and things like that. But it's just a different type of look and feel these days, you know. It absolutely is. There's no audience. The the players, you know, I guess it's plus, m- most of the players that I've heard say something about it don't are not unhappy. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of weird. I don't know if you've noticed they've got fake people on the side clapping and stuff like that. It's really weird. Have you seen that? Yes, yes. You could really see that. It's if- just weird. It doesn't have the same... Same. The same feel, same the same feel. Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, so, I don't know. And the French Open is coming up. They're going to still play that, right? Did I read that correctly? Yeah, they, they are. They are because, you know, the U.S. Yeah, they're going to do the French Open. So, yeah. And the U.S. Open is, is being successful right now with Serena yeah, Williams. Open and you Serena know. defeated Maria Sakari. Uh-huh. Her mother actually was a tennis player. They was I was listening to the commentary. Her mother actually played Chris Everett back in the day. Really? And, um, okay. So Chris was talking about her, her mother's name was Angelique something or other. Mm-hmm. So this is her daughter. And, it, you know, it was a well-thought-out, I saw the whole thing, I'm sure you did too, it was a well-thought-out mm-hmm. slugfest. And it was really kind of revenge for Serena because she had been beaten by this girl in that, that Western Open yeah. tennis tournament That's that she had just been in. Mm-hmm. That's down so in um, Cincinnati. Kind of like getting her back. You know, for, for a while, uh, Serena was struggling, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. but the girl is 39, will be 39 years old. She won the first U.S., her first U.S. Open in 1999 when she was just 19. Mm-hmm. And um, here she is, and she's trying to get to that 24 to be up against, uh, let me see, who was it that has more than, who, who was it that she, Margaret Court. I think it's Margaret Court record that she's trying to beat yeah because she she Uh, did she went up and she was tied with um steffi graf so it's the next level right Mm -hmm. so she accomplished three things she qualified for the tournament quarterfinals and let me just interject i'm looking on my phone she just won and she's in the semifinals okay so that just happened hot off the press so she redeemed herself after losing, as I said, to Sakari. And then she had, that was her 100th career victory at Arthur Ashe Stadium. Mm-hmm. And uh, there weren't any fans, like I said, which is kind of weird. It was weird. Um, the, the tennis star's <laughs> milestone victory puts her far ahead of Roger Federer, who's won at Arthur Ashe 77 times. Ashe was the first black man to win a Grand, a grand Slam tournament, taking the trophy home in 1968 at the first U.S. Open of the modern era when pro players were allowed to compete in a previously amateurs-only tournament. And speaking of black men, we had another African-American man, Francis Tiafor, mm-hmm. whose ancestry family is from Sierra Leone, mm-hmm. but he plays for the United States, who is American mm-hmm. from Maryland, and he plays, lost, but was a good game. So Serena said that uh, she was going to always bring fire and passion and all of that to the court. At first, she sounded, she seemed a little subdued when she came to the mic. But, you know, that's just Serena psyching everybody out. You that's know? it. <laughs> she's, like, she's like, oh, you know, I'm just going to play my game. And you know. And then you could see her. She's seen, and you don't know with Serena whether she's faking it in the beginning, struggling, and just say that she's going to let this girl, you know, think that she's winning. And then all of a sudden, she comes out like, Superman, and just push her away. You can tell 
you can tell when she gets her mojo. Yes. So she yes. goes from like, oh, I'm gonna miss this ball, and oh, and you can hear the commentators. Well, you know, Serena is in herself today, and Serena this, and then all of a sudden she comes out like Wonder Woman. Bam! Let me just put this away. Have a nice day. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Bam. always and so yeah like you bam. said bam like you said she she'll have serena if she's on her game it's all good but if she comes right. out and she's not on her game well you know she's gonna probably not play that well but she'll come back eventually she'll come back <laughs> mm-hmm. don't count her out you know i was watching it with some folks and they were like and i'm like nah, don't count serena out you mm. don't ever count serena williams out no don't ever do I that her come back where well, i turned the television off and said it's over and then all of a sudden she's won i'm sure you've seen that oh, too big time big time so i'm yeah, just don't ever count serena williams out i'm just really just pleased at how even after having her baby going up and down and stuff, she's still back winning. She winning. At that level, can you imagine she had a blood clot, had a baby, mm-hmm. had all these different things, and coming back and playing at that level? Exactly. Hey. I mean, that's some serious at that level. That's it. So kudos to her and whatever she does, as far as I'm concerned, right? Whatever. <laughs> whatever. That's it. I mean, coming back at that level is major. It's so major. Kudos to her. Kudos to her. And so looking at any of the sports stuff now is just a little bit different. It's different. It is different. Yeah. And you see how. Yeah, no when, audience. It is definitely different. And you see how when they do the NBA stuff, they have in the audience, they have the little dogs and little stuff. You know how they put the I little. Know. The little fake stuff, the fake audience. They had the. It's so funny, right. but yeah, it's it's different. It's different. It is different. As we say, but we have to be safe. We have to be safe. We definitely have to be, safe. be safe. We have to keep the players safe. Exactly. So, what's the latest, mm-hmm. D? What's the latest? Well, the latest is the vaccine. There are about nine clinical trials that are out there looking at a vaccine. Uh-huh. And what everybody has been concerned about is that from our, you know, the White House, there's been this thing that the president wants a vaccine to come out at the end of October, which is before the election day. And people know that, you know, you can't rush and hurry hurry these vaccine trials. So today, I didn't know it was yesterday, mm-hmm. and this was unprecedented, nine of pharmaceutical companies came together and assured the American public that they would not, you know, lower their standards or rush anything until they were assured that there was safety. It said the Washington Post reported that the CEOs of nine pharmaceutical companies with coronavirus vaccine candidates in clinical trials pledged Tuesday not to seek regulatory approval before the vac- before the safety and ex- efficacy of their experimental coronavirus vaccines has been established in phase three clinical trials. An extraordinary effort to bolster public faith in a vaccine amid President Trump's public rush to introduce the vaccine before Election Day. Let me preface this by saying we're not a partisan show here. We're just stating the facts. Mm-hmm. And in a joint statement, 
the CEOs of the nine companies said, we believe this pledge will help ensure public confidence in the rigorous scientific and regulatory process by which COVID-19 vaccines are evaluated and may ultimately be approved. Now, roll around today, and the nine companies are AstraZeneca, BioNTech, GlaxoSmithKline, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Moderna, Novavax, Pfizer, and Sanofi. Mm-hmm. Now, roll mm-hmm. around to today, uh-huh. AstraZeneca today, this morning, stopped their clinical trials because they reported an adverse effect in a British woman who was in one of their clinical trials. And it has it. So everybody was trying to say, well, what happened? Well, it turns out today they're reporting that she had a, an infectious process in her spinal cord called transverse myelitis. Okay. Now, transverse myelitis can be transient and it can go away, or it can end up causing paralysis at any level. Wow. Cervical or lumbar or thoracic or whatever. To me, that's pretty scary. That is scary. It's 100% causal effect. They're working on it, but they were, and this is how it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. They were cautious enough to say there was enough causal relationship in this that they needed to stop the study. Um, Because first of all, the people that are signing up for these clinical trials you know, they're not on their last leg. They don't have a lot of issues. These are healthy volunteers. Okay. So in my mind, for them to halt this study means they're, they're, and they, they should be concerned because we know that other vaccines have been put out historically where they've had side effects. So, yeah, it's, it's well worth them stopping, taking a look back, see, and then proceeding. And I think the other nine pharmaceutical companies are going to start looking at their data too to see if they've had anybody to present that but transverse myelitis is nothing to play with right because you're talking paralysis right and who wants to who wants to be paralyzed from a vaccine and you might you know you Nobody. might right you might not even get COVID 19 but you're going to be paralyzed from from the vaccine so yeah that's a good thing yeah they they got to study that yeah i, I uh-huh. agree so i mean it you know it, it bears transverse it's not like they had a little pimple on their leg or something Mm-mm. so that's something wow that's the latest on the vaccine so we'll have to see how things shake out um i'm hoping and and i as i listen to the think tank thought leaders, the people whose opinion I respect, I'm thinking people are saying by spring of 2021, we should probably have our first run through of of vaccines that are available to people in the United States. The Surgeon General has also said that he's going to give pharmacies the permission to distribute the vaccine as well, which actually, to be honest with you, I'd rather get mine from the pharmacy anyway. I got one yesterday. I got two yesterday, my flu vaccine. I got my tetanus, and the guy back there that gave it, I mean, I I, I was like, in a second, it was over. Yes. You know, used to some of the people, you know, it, they push it in. And uh, oh, I know. And I'm like, you done? I know. That guy was fabulous. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. You know. yeah so I that's gotta... the latest, Vic. That's the latest. Stay tuned. And like Ebola... Hopefully, I'll be able to report on this for weeks to come until we get a new vaccine. I'm really excited, but proceed with caution. And Dr. D. Banks is not going to be the first one in line. Let that be. <laughs> no, ma'am. Me either, right? <laughs> no, ma'am. Okay. I'm there. happy for everybody. I want a vaccine. 
but I've set a I've set a number. It will have to have been in a million people before I decide to take it. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Hey, that's coming from an infectious disease physician. So Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not gonna be the first one in line taking that vaccine. No, no, and no. <laughs> there it but, is. <laughs> but you were you were talking about obesity and its implications. Yeah. So did you want to go ahead and talk about that now? Sure. Or? Okay. Yeah, sure. Yesterday, and, you know, I get a lot of stuff on my emails now, a lot of alerts. I'm tied into the Infectious Disease Society, and they do a lot of updates a couple times a day on just gleaning information from the medical journals and all that. And it appears, and we've known this for some time, that obesity is emerging as a top risk factor for individuals with uh, who have COVID and COVID mortality. And, you know, I've been taking care of patients now since maybe March with COVID and mm-hmm. maybe not men so much, but women, you can probably bet on that if a woman is COVID, she's in intensive care, she's really sick, she's going to be obese. Mm-hmm. And I think, what is that defined as, uh, Vicki? BMI over like 30? Yes, and over. Um, so... I'm glad you sent this article to me because the one that I got was from the Washington Post. And this is actually, this was in June. And what I just was reporting was just from yesterday. So it dovetails how they were, they saw this in June. So did we. In a recent journal, the American Medical Association regarding fatalities, and this was in Italy, associated with new coronavirus pandemic, failed to mention obesity as one of the pre-existing diseases associated with death. Mm-hmm. It seems likely that the increased prevalence of obesity in older adults in Italy compared with China may account for the differences in mortality between the two countries. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, the rising uh, prevalence of obesity in the United States, and see, that's the other thing. I mean, this also dovetails with us knowing about obesity, you know, about the epidemic of obesity in this country. Mm -hmm. Uh, So furthermore, the rising prevalence of obesity in the United States and prior experience of the impact of obesity on mortality from H1N1 influenza should increase the sensitivity of clinicians caring for patients with obesity and COVID to the need for aggressive treatment of such patients. So between April 2009 In January 2010, the CDC estimated that 41 to 84 million people were infected with H1N1, influenza virus, and that between 180,000 and 370,000 infected patients were hospitalized, with 8,000 to 17,000 deaths. Several reports from all around the world identified obesity and and severe obesity as risk factors for hospitalization and mechanical ventilation. I'm going to roll around and hold on that article and report to you from what came out yesterday, which is now we're September the 4th. This article was in June. Okay. And again, starting to identify obesity as a factor. June, July, August, so three months later. Okay. The Washington Post reported two or three days ago, eight months into the pandemic, obesity has turned out to be one of the clearest stunning coronavirus death and morbidity rate in the United States, mm-hmm. which has one of the highest obesity rates in the world. Wow. Let that sink in. Mm-hmm. In the world. The Post highlighted, Washington Post highlighted one patient who survived 18 days on a ventilator and returned home, but his weight complicated his illness and his care and now is influencing his painful, laborious 
recovery. So we have uh, we have watched that and witnessed that. You know, you don't want to make any scientific information based on anecdotal information, but it seems like eight months into this now, it's a little bit more than anecdotal that there is a causal, you know, relationship between obesity and COVID-19 and mortality and morbidity. But, you know, that would, that would kind of make sense, you know, especially if you just thinking of how the, the virus, how it affects a lot of those um, systems, the breathing, the metabolic, you know, those type of things that we have to look at. You know, if you type 2 diabetic, you know, if you obese, that's a precursor for that kind of thing as well. So all of that kind of relates. Right. All of that kind of relates. And yeah, yeah, I can see, I can yeah, see that. Exactly. And if you if you obese, that's that's hard to breathe. Well, yeah, and you know, I put on Facebook yesterday. I just said it's an opportunity for us. And when I started witnessing this, you know, everybody jokes. We joke about the COVID ten and COVID fifteen. So with everybody, you know, quarantining, it's been very easy for people and gyms being closed and all that. It's been very easy for people not to exercise and you know, people cooking and stuff. And when I started to notice that, that it was a risk factor, you know, I started to kind of like watch it because it was just too easy. Even though I was working, I, I, was, I was suspecting that obesity was a major issue. And I was t- telling people yesterday that now is an opportunity for everybody to just maybe let's start on, on a weight loss exercise program to just take off maybe a couple pounds, no drastic weight loss, but knowing that this is an independent risk factor might motivate some people to do a little bit more in terms of looking at their own health. Exactly. I totally agree. I totally agree. And that's why, yeah, yeah, that's why we are here. Vicky Doe Fitness, go check out our online programs because, yeah, I know that people are not going to the gyms as much because they weren't, they weren't open for a long while. No, they were not. Right. But I also encourage people to go outside and do things now, while especially in Northeast Ohio, while you can, even if it's just walking, right? Yeah. Doing exactly. something, doing something. Anything, right. Right. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Vicki Haywood Doe. I just wanted to break in for a quick second and introduce to you the sponsor and creator of this show. It's the company I own, Haywood Doe Consulting Co., doing business as Vicky Doe Fitness. We are a health and wellness consulting company that specializes in designing and implementing medically integrated applied exercise physiology-based fitness wellness programs, initiatives, events, health promotion, and health education for special populations such as older folks, children, adolescents, overweight and obese individuals, cardiac rehab, women's health, and those who have chronic diseases. We have a team and network of healthcare professionals based out of Northeast Ohio, and we've worked with many companies, schools, churches, and organizations. If your goal is to transform your life by taking a holistic approach to living a life of health and total well-being, Get in touch with us at info at To find out more about our own site and online programs and services, go to vikidofitness.com. And now back to the show. 
Today, we talk about research articles and hot topics that we think are worth looking at and talking about. Our topic today is what's new, hot topics number 58. Our first article is, this is right on time since we just talked about the relationship between obesity and COVID-19. This article definitely is something to think about. This article was written by an actual physical therapist. His opinion of what's going on, and he says, why I like CDC exercise guidelines. And their guideline is progress is the prescription. And so this is written, Active People, Healthy Nation, Creating an Active America Together. And this is based on the CDC guidelines. He says, I love the idea of the CDC handing down exercise guidelines. The more we can do collectively to close the gap of perceived importance between active and passive management of disease, that's including aging, the better we can help people to realize greater health in whichever ways they may choose to define it. And federal agencies paying attention to exercise can certainly contribute to that goal. But I think, uh-uh. I think there might be a better approach. I like fundamentals. And as much as I wholeheartedly believe in the idea of movement as medicine, and he says that's the reason why he chose the career that he does, he says, I'm not so sure that dosing exercise should be the focus that some would like it to become. But we physical therapists, and that's him, that's he's talking about himself, are movement experts. Shouldn't we apply our special, our specialist knowledge as precisely as we can. Well, he says, two and a half hours of moderately intense aerobic exercise is a great target for a lot of people. Its basis is the principle that specific adaptations within the body can be elicited only by sufficiently intense demands imposed upon its systems. But for some, this target is permanently out of reach. And for others, it's not nearly enough to stimulate change. In perpetuating this target for individuals, we repeat the mistakes made with other population measures that we do like BMI. So he's saying, I've heard the arguments of PTs, physical therapists, who favor exercise dosing, who declare it as critically important as the dose of a medication. The principles that exercise is a powerful intervention and that imposing the right demands leads to adaptation are right. But he, he's saying I, he's proposing a different recommendation. It isn't sensational. There won't be any fanfare surrounding its implementation. And most of all, me movement experts won't be instrumental to um, making it work. But it will guarantee meaningfully better health for those who receive it. And so he says, I propose a prescription to pursue continuous improvement, not clear enough to become action. That's what he's asking. He goes, no, I don't think so. I think that the new 
headlines that purport worsening generational health owing to um, sedentary lifestyles and faltering attitudes about responsibility are only accelerating and for relatively young and healthy people in particular, the real idea we should be working on is to ingrain what he's proposing to stay static is to deteriorate. So what he's proposing Mm -hmm. is instead of us staying static, he's proposing that we do something like we say here, a little exercise is better than nothing. And you keep adding on to it. And so he says, even to individuals for whom maintenance of capacity would be a successful outcome, don't we send the wrong message by never moving the target? In any case, are the 2.5 hours of aerobic activity recommendations directed at those individuals anyway? Why shouldn't the CDC recommend instead of aiming for doing 5% more next week, whether in terms of intensity duration or some other parameter, then you could do this week. Why shouldn't they recommend instead of the aim to doing 5% uh, more next week or try something new? So what he's saying is that once we move and progress to a certain level, then let's move the bar and, and keep progressing to a higher level. He said, or the CDC should recommend or do the same activity, amount of activity, progress can come in many forms. And as those who live the philosophy already understand, it has to come in many forms or plateau is inevitable. So making a little progress to do a little better. The idea of continuous, and that's after all this that I'm saying and reading, he's saying that he likes us to really think about continuous improvement. And it is more immensely more powerful than the strategy of reaching a certain level of fitness and coasting once you're there. So I can see what he means. For instance, we always see that, oh, let me lose 10 or 15 pounds so I can get in this dress for the wedding. But then what happens after the wedding, right? (laughs) So he's saying that we should continuously always be trying to progress. So once again, this is what he's saying. The idea of dosing exercise as a method of signaling its importance relative to the utility of passive interventions like pharmaceuticals is a great one. But he says, I worry that it sensationalized for short-term gain, an idea which I take very seriously. The idea that the best way to help people realize better health is to help them solve their own problems as actively as they can. So exercise can do more than, than very many of the things which we call health care. It has no negative consequence and it costs nothing. Guidelines are good, but as we've seen with other public health initiatives, one size fits few. That's what he's saying. One size fits few. To seek improvement should be and is the recommendation that we should make. Movement is medicine and progress is the prescription. So with all that, what he's trying to say, and the article was a little bit kind of 
cumbersome what he was trying to say, but I do get it. What he's trying to say is that instead of thinking about, oh, let's um, exercise 150 minutes and more per week. Yes, we want to do that, but let's concentrate on what we can do right now. Let's progress to that and let's keep on progressing. Even if we can't do but just a little bit, that's fine. Do it and keep your goal is to continuously do something and keep progressing. What's the next article, D? So the next one is an interesting article, which a lot of people have been talking about. Well, why don't we just have like chicken pox parties where we put a bunch of people together and let them all get infected and get chicken pox? Well, it's not as simple. This is an article on the cost of herd immunity in the United States. People are like, well, why wear masks and social? Why don't we just let everybody in a great big room and then everybody get infected? And then we'll have the virus won't have anywhere to where to go because everybody will have had it. Well, so this is an article, the cost of herd immunity in the United States likely involves more than a million deaths. That cannot be our price. So the latest position <laughs> to President Donald Trump's advisory team is pushing a herd immunity strategy, according to the Washington Post. Scott Atlas, who's a radiologist, not an infectious disease specialist, we're not partisan on this show, but I'm just saying. Okay. I believe he's a neuroradiologist. Okay. He has advocated using the Swedish approach, allowing people to become infected naturally in order to build immunity to COVID while focusing on protecting the vulnerable, like nursing home residents. The Post report is based on interviews of five people who were familiar with the discussion. Atlas, Dr. Atlas, denied advising that the administration pursue a herd immunity strategy. During a, a press briefing, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, on Monday, Atlas called the Post report a lie. There's news. There's opinion, and then there's overt lie, he said, and there was never a strategy advocated by me. This is Atlas in the administration. The president does not have a strategy like that. I have never had a strategy. Public health experts roundly criticized that approach, noting that it, was, it didn't work in Sweden, mm -hmm. which has the highest COVID mortality rate among the Nordic countries. It's 574 deaths per million people, far outnumbered Denmark's 108 per million, or Finland's 61 per million, or Norway's 49 per million. The Swedish figure is close to Italy, 587 deaths per million. Of course, we have about 130,000 deaths, but I, I digress. <laughs> Sweden tried this herd immunity approach and had many more deaths than their European peers per capita and hasn't escaped the economic carnage they had hoped by this strategy, according to Greg Gonzalez. He's an epidemiologist at Yale. Herd immunity, the Swedish model, Sweden had a higher death rate than Denmark, Norway, and Finland, and its economy did work. The only alternative to controlling the virus is more deaths and more economic devastation. And that's what I had said. You know, how many deaths are we willing to accept in this country if we decide to do herd immunity? And people who advocate that have to understand you might be one of those that dies. That's it. So Dr. Frieden, who was a former CDC director, said, choose health. Dr. Atlas, as again I said, a radiologist, has no training right. or expertise in infectious diseases, but what he does have are the words the president wants you to hear or wants to hear. You can let the virus spread widely throughout the United States if you just try to keep the elderly safe, open up everything, and let her rip, he tweeted. According to the California Medical Board, 
Dr. Atlas is board certified in diagnostic radiology and neuroradiology, not public health, not infectious diseases, not microbiology, not none of that. <laughs> okay, I digress. Okay, I digress. okay, okay. <laughs> the Post reported that Atlas was hired because Trump was looking for a doctor whose opinions on the pandemic were more in line with his own vision. Other physicians on the White House task force, Dr. Fauci, Deborah Burke, have fallen out of favor with the president. Atlas, a fellow at the conservative Hoover Institution, as one of my kids said, it just keeps getting worse and worse. That's anyway, it. <laughs> at Atlas, a fellow at the conservative Hoover Institution, has made numerous appearances on Fox News, pushing reopening of the economy and highlighting the adverse effects of shutting it down, such as an increase in depression and suicidal thinking. Now, that is true. That's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. We have noticed some mental health issues with this. The Post reported that he meets with Trump every day. Moreover, according to the Washington Post, other administration administration actions are in line with a herd immunity strategy. Even if officials don't admit it, for instance, the Department of Health and Human Services has ramped up shipments of tests to nursing homes, but hasn't increased spending on testing in other areas. So as well, controversial revised CDC guidelines effectively call for less testing in asymptomatic people, despite that 25 to 40% of all infections are asymptomatic. So Dr. Atlas has also advocated opening schools, despite outbreaks that have occurred once in-person learning resumed. So the newspaper noted that countries that have best controlled the virus implemented strict lockdowns that were heated by citizens, imposed masks, and deployed widespread testing and contact tracing. It's not certain what percentage of the United States population of about 328 million would need to be infected to achieve her immunity. And I'm not, I'm looking at this article, I've heard somewhere between 60 and 70 percent. This article says 65 to 70. Okay. Currently, the United States has a case fatality rate of 3 percent based on 187,000 deaths and 6.2 million infections. However, the infection fatality rate is likely lower since most asymptomatic infections probably aren't detected. Using World Health Organization 65% and CDC of 0.65% figures, 213 million people in the United States would need to be infected to achieve herd immunity, leaving 1,385,800 people dead. Let me repeat that. If we decided we wanted to do that herd immunity thing where 60 to 65 to 70% of the people were now, had now gotten COVID, you would have to accept 1,385,800. So that's the population of Cleveland, Ohio, or something of that nature, something like that, the whole Cleveland town or, you know, all of greater Youngstown or something like including Boardman, Canfield, would certainly include all of this area. Oh, definitely. And then Columbus, too, you and can think stress, of that. And not only that, mm-hmm. it would cause stress on the hospitals, resources, on drugs. Thus far, about 370,000 Americans have been hospitalized. If we assume that for each case diagnosed so far, five cases occurred without signs of symptoms, that leads to a hospitalization rate of 1%. With 213 million infections, then about 2.3 million people could expect to end up in the hospital. And, Vicki, you would never see me and Dr. Doe because we wouldn't ever come out of the hospital. Wow. These hospitalizations come with a cost. Studies have yielded a wide range of median or average costs of just over $10,000 to more than $70,000. If for simplicity we assume it averages $30,000, the total hospital bill 
to achieve herd immunity is about $80 billion. Who's going to pay for that? Uh, people don't have health care. Who's paying for that? I know. And herd immunity works only if people can't get reinfected with the virus, which isn't a certainty. We don't even know if we can achieve lasting immunity. Most likely we can't. And even if we could, it would take hundreds of millions more COVID-19 infections and millions of preventable deaths that cannot be our price. That's this article. And so just a quickly summarize this, and I thought that last statement was powerful, and let me repeat it. Even if we achieve herd immunity, let's say within the next, by December, that immunity may be gone by June mm. or may be gone by a, a year from December. So that means we have sacrificed a million 300,000 people to get only a year of immunity when we're going to be right back in the same situation again. Well, since you said it, (laughs) since you put it like that, hey, it makes you think because, you know, that's what people thinking. And see, that's what kills me when you got these these I call them wise, dumb folks. They're wise, but they're dumb because they they be trying to think of these things, but they haven't really thought it through clearly. Yes. Just don't throw stuff up on the wall. You haven't thought it through. That's it. That's it. Well, our next article, you know, we've heard about Chadwick Bosman, his death. You know, he was our star, our Black Panther star. But yes, he died of colon cancer just recently. And so this article was written in the Washington Post. Chadwick Baldwin's um, death is making young people think about colon cancer. Here's what to know. And so it starts out saying almost immediately after news broke last week of the actor Chadwick Baldwin that he had died of colon cancer at age 43, social media exploded and reactions as um, people worldwide grappled the fact with the unexpected loss. But amid the flood of touching tributes to the Black Panther star, whose four-year battle with the disease was not widely known, there was also confusion. Colon cancer? One person tweeted, way too young. Another person said, very strange colon cancer at such a young age? And then another person said, I didn't even know you could get colon cancer that young. And so such comments have concerned experts who say they exemplify pervasive misconceptions about the risks colon, colorectal cancer poses to people of all age groups. This is what Kimmy Ng, a director of the Young Onset Colorectal Cancer Center at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. In Boston. Yes, this is what Kimmy Ng said. I've talked too many, I've talked with too many of my young patients and they've told me that they never even knew about colorectal cancer before they got diagnosed. This lack of awareness, awareness is a problem, experts say, one that is believed to be a major reason colorectal cancer is usually not caught in young people until the disease has advanced into later stages where survival rates are much lower. Bosman was diagnosed in 2016 with stage 3 colon cancer, which progressed to stage 4 before his death, August the 28th. This is, and this was said by William Kantz, it's an absolute tragedy. 
and William Kantz is the American Cancer Society's chief medical and scientific officer. He said to think that he is gone at 43 from a preventable death is so sad. Yep. In recent yep. days, as colon rectal cancer has gained renewed national attention, experts have brought out in full force, they have come out to in full force to raise awareness about the disease, which is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States from men and women combined. Experts say there are steps people can take to reduce the number of cases and deaths, including combating um, stigmas surrounding the illness and pushing early detection methods. Ng said, it's sad that it takes a big, well-known name to succumb to to this disease to bring awareness. That shouldn't be the only circumstance under which this cancer is talked about. But I do think that it has opened up the conversation in a way that I haven't seen. And I am really hopeful that it will encourage screening and hopefully safe lives in the future. Colon rectal cancer, which causes tumors in the colon and rectum, most commonly affects people who are 50 and older. But experts have been troubled by the growing body of research showing a steady rise in the number of young people diagnosed. According to a March report from the American Cancer Society, the rate of colorectal cancer among people younger than 50 has been increasing by about 2% annually in recent years. In 2018, the ACS, um, the American Cancer Society, changed its guidelines to advise people to start regularly screening for colorectal cancer at 45 five years younger than the age recommended by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. People who are more at risk because of an inflammatory bowel disease or family history of colorectal cancer should begin even earlier. Of the roughly 148,000 individuals who will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer this year, about 18,000 of those cases have been young people. Pretty soon, about a quarter of all colorectal cancers are going to be in people under the age of 50, said Ng. So we really need to reverse that trend now by doing the research to figure out why it's happening. Why? And that's the question. This is Kimmy Ng asked. Why rates among young people are climbing is the million-dollar question. Colorectal cancer has been linked to a number of lifestyle-related risk factors, such as diet, weight, and exercise, according to the ACS. There are also racial disparities in risk as rates of cancer are higher in black people. But Ng said she and her colleagues have noticed that the vast majority of their young patients diagnosed with colorectal cancer are not obese. They live active, healthy lifestyles and don't have family histories. Look at Chadwick Bosman, who was in great shape. So clearly there's something else. And what that is, is an active area of research. And this is what she is saying. So scientists are looking into processed food and the use of antibiotics as potential triggers. And this is what Kance said. He noted that the human microbiome has been 
particularly intriguing to researchers. In the meantime, though, experts say awareness and education are critical. And so Robin Mendelson, who is the co-rector of the the Center for um, Young Onset Colorectal Cancer at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, has said, we've been really trying to educate both patients and healthcare providers that this is a phenomenon. If you do have symptoms, it is so important, first of all, not to be ashamed of them and to talk to your providers about them and for providers to know that this is an entity so that patients can be promptly evaluated appropriately. And so they've given some some key guidelines that both experts, patients, and doctors can work to prevent deaths from mm-hmm. colon cancer. And one of them is to mm-hmm. normalize conversations, you know, because, you know, not many people feel comfortable talking about symptoms associated with colon rectal cancer, even during doctor visit, right? And so right. common symptoms include Persistent change in bowel movements, such as diarrhea or constipation, rectal bleeding or bloody stool, persistent abdominal discomfort, weakness or fatigue and unexplained weight loss, according to the Mayo Clinic. And so they're um, saying one of the things is to normalize talking about it. The next thing would be to don't dismiss persistent symptoms. Another reason diagnosis may um, be more delayed in younger patients is that they often don't take the telltale signs or the symptoms persistently, right, and seriously, right? And this was said by Andrea Circuit, who is a co-director as well. Many are starting families. They're raising the families in careers. They're leading busy lives. And just because of that, yeah. they dismiss their symptoms. And so yeah. it's important that the physicians take these symptoms seriously, right? And then another yeah. one, yeah, that's true. another guideline is that they're asking um, physicians and the patients and doctors to think about is to know the importance of screening. Yes, data have shown a decrease in rates of colon rectal cancer among people 65 and older, which is probably due to more regular screening, experts says. Screening can be done through stool tests or a colonoscopy, which is considered to be the gold standard method. Though a colonoscopy is an invasive procedure that involves cleansing your colon beforehand and being under anesthesia, the complications, Mendelssohn stressed that the risk of major complications is low. So, when colorectal cancer is caught in stage one, survival chances are in the mid-90s. By the time it progresses to stage three, the rate is between 60 to 80 percent, and treatment usually involves chemotherapy. At stage four, chances drop to between 10 to 20 percent. Right now, though, there is currently no routine screening for young folks. And so all that to say, to end this, and that is that with the Black Panther, you know, his, his death, this is really getting people out there and, and talking about getting early screening, even for the young folks that are suffering, you know, having these symptoms. It's better, I guess, uh-huh. I guess it's better safe than sorry. And so, yeah, yeah. screening is always the best test and the one 
that needs to get done. It was sad to hear about Chadwick's um, dying, you know, early, just 43 of colorectal cancer. But at least it, it gets us, you know, thinking. But it's a wake-up call for a lot of people to realize that, that, you know, we have, both of us had a friend who will go unnamed who ended up having colon cancer at a young age. Yes, so, yes. So, yeah, so. You know. Yeah, so. It's real. It's real, I know. I know it's real. At the end of the day, let's all think about, you know, still honing in those lifestyle habits, but also right. to think about screening, not just for colon cancer, but for, you know, our breasts, getting the mammograms and all that. Yes, it is right. a little bit different because it's COVID-19, but, you know, mm-hmm. let's still think about um, getting screening when we can early. So our last article, D, and you're gonna yeah, end our us last out. Article is on addressing influenza vaccination disparities during this COVID pandemic. And each year, uh, this is one of my big pet peeves, and one of the things that I've been promoting. Influenza poses a substantial burden on communities and healthcare systems. During the three most recent influenza seasons, 2016, 17, 17, 18, and 18 and 19, influenza is estimated to have been associated with 29 to 45 million illnesses, 14 million to 21 medical visits, 490 to 810,000 hospitalizations, 34,000 to 61,000 deaths each season. During the fall of 2020, both influenza and severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, COVID, the virus associated with coronavirus are anticipated to circulate. As of August the 17th, 2020, uh, COVID has been associated with more than 5.3 million infections and more than 168,000 deaths in the United States. Even a moderately severe influenza season in the presence of circulating COVID would significantly amplify cases of acute respiratory illness and more intensely stress healthcare personnel and resources and hospitals and emergency rooms etc. However, less than half of the U.S. adults receive an influenza vaccine each year. Even after the severe 2017-18 influenza season, overall vaccine coverage remained at 45%. During 2018-2019, during the subsequent 2018-2019, and long-standing and substantial disparities, particularly we noticed also in the 2018 and 2019, we noticed substantial disparities, particularly among race and ethnicity, persisted in, in, in also uh, specifically non-Hispanic, Black, Hispanic, American Indian, Alaskan Native adults. So the issue is that one of the reasons that we're pushing this influenza vaccine now is that basic bottom line, people haven't taken it. And the people that are most predisposed to getting COVID are the, these individuals, the black and brown people, who were ones that didn't weren't taking the, vac- the influenza vaccine. Okay. So these gaps in vaccination coverage are particularly concerning during this season as COVID reveals another facet of health inequity that we talked about on this show. Non-Hispanic blacks, as I said, Hispanics, American Indian, uh, Alaska Native Indi- individuals have had the lowest vaccination coverage, influenza vaccination coverage, and also have been disproportionately affected by COVID. Surveillance data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control Prevention of 1,320,000 cases reported through May 2020 indicate that among persons diagnosed with COVID for whom race and ethnicity were known, 33% were Hispanic, 22% were Black, 1.3 American Indian Alaska Native individuals, but these groups comprise only 
13, and 0.7% of U.S. population, respectively. An analysis of a national sample of publicly available data through mid-April and covering 3,000-plus counties reported that 20% of disproportionately black counties, defined as those with greater than 13% black, accounted for more than half of the COVID diagnoses, 52%, and deaths, 58%. Prevention or reduction in severity of as many cases of acute respiratory illnesses as possible will be a critical step to reduce morbidity and mortality and conserve already strained health care resources. Influenza vaccines will be a critical intervention for this, and influenza vaccine effectiveness varies depending on factors such as the age and health of the recipient and the match between the viruses represented in the vaccine and ones that circulate in the community. However, even in a season of suboptimal mass and low vaccine effectiveness, vaccination results in a substantial reduction in the burden of illness and the strain to the healthcare system. The reason for disparities in COVID incidence, morbidity, and mortality are multifactorial. We talked about that on this show. Members of racial and ethnic minority groups may be more likely to have barriers to obtaining affordable, high-quality health care, including more limited access to health insurance, transportation, and child care, Barriers to routine medical care means fewer opportunities to benefit from them, preventative interventions, and increased vulnerability to chronic conditions such as cardiovascular disease, pulmonary disease, and diabetes that are associated with worse outcomes. Distrust of the medical care system, which is what we're running into now with clinical trials and vaccines, may be more prevalent among members of racial and ethnic minority populations due to a history of discrimination and past instances of medical experimentation. Can't argue with that. Exacerbating factors, including inequities in education, employment, income, paid sick leave, and housing that make for increased difficulty with basic but critical self-care actions, such as getting adequate rest and proper nutrition, as well as those important keeping self, family, and community health during a pandemic, such as staying at home from work. Like you were saying, where you had a chance to reflect being quarantined and so forth, but there's so many essential workers and so forth out there because of social determinants that haven't been able to rest and get their nutrition together. Right, right. So until a safe, effective SARS vaccine is available, and the majority of the population is vaccinated, COVID cases and associated morbidity and mortality will continue, likely, without tailored interventions and additional research on social determinants of vaccine acceptance and coverage, racial and ethnic minority populations are likely to continue to bear a disproportionate burden of influenza and COVID. That's it. Lastly, mm-hmm. to address these persistent health disparities, physicians and other healthcare professionals can in the short term make better use of the tools already at their disposal, vaccinating, preventing influenza, and I would also add being more of a messenger, get the churches involved, get the barbershops involved, get the hairdressers involved in passing the message of getting vaccinated. Increasing the uptake of influenza vaccination this season will help ameliorate the compounding of illness and healthcare system stress caused by the additional circulation of another potentially life-threatening viral respiratory disease. Clinicians should strongly recommend influenza vaccine to all their patients and should administer flu vaccine in their offices whenever prioritizing measures to help reduce the disproportionate effect of these illnesses on racial and ethnic minority populations must be part of the national strategy. Medical and public health professionals should work with partners trusted by racial and ethnic minority communities to establish trust and identify the best ways to meet 
health care needs in disproportionately affected populations, ensuring full and equal access to influenza vaccination will ensure all people in the United States are maximally protected. Good article. Yes, yes, yes. Very good article and very timely mm-hmm. with my soapbox that I've been promoting. And then I might also add for individuals that if you're over the age of 65, there are two different influenza vaccines. There's one for those that are six months to 65, and then there's another vaccine from those that are 65 and older. Now, admittedly, and I always will confess when it's time to confess, like Dr. Banks will not be in that first line for vaccines, but I will confess that I have had a hesitancy about taking the high-dose vaccine because I heard it hurt. Okay. So, roll around, roll around. I decided I can't recommend to people something that I'm not willing to do myself. And I took the high-dose vaccine yesterday and didn't notice any different than any other time I've taken the flu shot. And to know that I'm getting better protected, maybe when I didn't take it last year, it wasn't during the era of COVID. We need everything we can get now. So I decided whatever they had for this high-dose, whatever. Okay. Go get your flu shot. It's in all pharmacies. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. free with your Medicare. Uh, you need to check with your insurance companies in terms of cost. I'm told that in the drug stores, the cost is less, or you can sometimes get it for free. Double check. Influenza for Medicare should be covered, and most insurance companies should cover it for anybody else, but just double check. But it's well worth it. That's it. So, yeah, we were getting phone calls from, I think, was it Rite Aid, to tell people to start uh-huh. coming in early to get theirs. Yep. Yeah, now. Mm-hmm. Now, I called around at least in this area, like, mm-hmm. you know, Rite Aid and CBS and Walgreens, and they all have it. That's our best bet to do that. And usually, I don't really, I make my confession, I don't really do flu shots, not consistently, unless I have to, if I'm in, the, in if I'm doing right. research or if I'm in the school setting or the university. But uh-huh. see, now, since I'm in the school setting, I definitely will be going and getting my flu shot this year, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, and you're, you're in a high-risk area. You're back in school now, so I think mm-hmm. it makes a difference. It makes a difference, big time. It makes a difference. That ends our show, D. Do you have some tips that we should think about? Yeah, we covered several today. Number one, the first, uh, get your flu shot mm-hmm. from six months up to over the age of 65. Talk to your doctor about colon cancer screening. Mm-hmm. Chadwick Bosman, Bozeman's death was highlighted. Again, disparities in terms of a lot of diseases, including colon cancer. Stay tuned for vaccine development. We're going to have to see how that shakes out. The herd immunity thing is probably not a good idea. <laughs> and since we know that obesity is a high risk mm. factor for mm-hmm. COVID, and with your article in terms of exercise, let's get back now with every, all the little kitties back in school or back on some kind of routine, we all need to get back into some sort of exercise routine of any kind. Of any kind. Of any length of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the exercise, the most important thing that that article was stressing is that we should just be moving and progressing, meaning even right. if you start out just can't do but a little bit, Keep doing it. Keep doing it and keep progressing over time and just keep it, keep it, what what you say, keep it moving. (laughs) Keep it moving. That's it. Keep it moving. 
Yes, and we can. That's something that we can control, and that's something that we can do to get in the mindset of being proactive for our health and wellness. Right, D? Absolutely, absolutely. And as always, for more information, go to our website, www.vikidofitness.com. And remember, if you have any questions, comments, or just something to say, tweet us, email us, go on Facebook, and share with us your thoughts. You've been listening to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward-Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks-Bright. Vicki Doe is owner of Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum, a place to discuss, learn, and participate in healthy living. You can get in touch with Vicki by email at info at vickidofitness.com.